Scott Boris, nautical analogies of tragedies. Keep them honest. Vroom, vroom. Here's your primer on Beef Boys, Baseball's End, Roger Angel, and Super Pretzels, Williams Astadio, and Mike Trout Hypotheticals. Waiting for the perfect bat from a volcanic eruption. Ladies and gentlemen, the Effectively Wild Introduction. Hello and welcome to episode 2082 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I don't work for the Chicago Cubs, mm. but some people do. Oh, some yeah. people don't. My God. <laughs> yeah, we have some hot managerial news to talk about yep. in a moment. How often <laughs> is that something that we would yeah. say? <laughs> but I have one quick prompt for you before that. There was a thread in our Facebook group posted by someone named Casey who said, I'll never understand why some players on the losing team in the World Series stay in the dugout and watch the winning team celebrate. If mm. it were me... I'd run back to the clubhouse like my hair was on fire the second the last out was made. So I wanted to ask you, <sighs> tag yourself in the footage of the World Series ending where you always see the winners celebrating and then the losers. Some guys immediately, they pack up their stuff and they head for the tunnel and they get out of there. And yeah. other guys sit out there and... I don't know, torture themselves or try to come to terms with the fact that they just lost. Some of them with their heads in their hands, some of them <laughs> trying to seem stoic. What would what would you do in that scenario? I love that you came to me, a person famous for her own self-loathing, for insight into this question. Where would I be? I'd probably be on the rail. I'd probably be on the rail watching. Yeah. Do I think that it is purely an indication of self-loathing? I mean, no. <laughs> I think that people, particularly professional athletes, draw inspiration and motivation from a lot of places, including difficult and dark moments. You know, what darker a moment if you're a, a player in a World Series than watching the winning team, which is not you celebrate, particularly if it's on your home field. Right. Yeah. You know, but I also think that that moment, while very sad, I would imagine potentially quite frustrating. It also has within it like an important bit of conclusion yeah. to an experience that is probably very emotionally complex for for players right you're you know you might not be able to sort of tap into this part of the emotional experience when you're on the losing side of the world series but you know even if you lose i think we said this when we were discussing sort of what does this mean for the diamondbacks like I, I hope that they are able to come to a place of sort of pride for what they did accomplish, even as they remain sort of unsatisfied by um, what they were able to achieve in the in the season and, and able to use it for motivation for the following year. Mm -hmm. um, so like if I were Corbin Carroll or whatever, I know he was one of the guys, I think, uh, who kind of hung around for a bit after the final out, being able to sort of have a bookend to that experience and say, okay, like this chapter of my playing career is over now. And even though this is an unpleasant moment, it is a meaningful one and one that I need to sort of take a, a second to, to mark and clock as like having happened. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that being, 
even if you don't conceptualize it, conceptualize of it this way in the moment, like important to being able to close that chapter and then move on to the following season and not always be looking back, but sort of having plans and ambition and and momentum forward, right? So yeah. I, I don't think that it has to be dark, but I I can imagine it being important for other reasons. And, and it's probably a lot of things, right? It probably feels mm-hmm. a lot of different ways. Disappointing and sad, maybe most um, profoundly and and resonantly in that moment. Resonantly, I don't know if that's a word, Ben. You know, I just I'm not I'm not confident. But certainly a lot of different things at once. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, baseball and sports, good low stakes way to be sad. I guess yeah. this is can be a among high the higher stakes. Yeah. yeah, this is this is as high stakes <laughs> as sports gets. I guess the championship game, but I still think I would watch. Yeah, I don't think I would watch to burn the memory into my brain so that I could use it to fuel my desire to yeah. win, which probably some players do. <laughs> you know, they're they're wired sure. a little bit differently than we are. So I'm oh, sure yeah. some of them, it's like, I want to sear this memory into my mind so that I, I never end up here again, which for me, well, I don't think I'm necessarily motivated that way or that I motivate myself that way. But also, like, you can't really will yourself back there, you know? So you you can to a certain extent, but you're probably already trying really hard to win if you're a Major League Baseball player on a pennant-winning team. So you, you can't just sheer willpower your way back to the World Series or sheer willpower your way to a victory instead of a loss. So that wouldn't be a big motivating factor for me. I think it, it would provide some sort of closure like that's the end of such a long odyssey for you showing up to spring training in mid-February and here you are in maybe early November I feel like just to kind of close the book on the season and and shift into off-season mode I would sort of need to see that celebration I think that would help me turn the page potentially so maybe it's that maybe there's probably some element of I wash, I guess, like maybe, you know, you're trying to look devastated. I think probably most players are legitimately like whatever they're emoting is what they're actually feeling. But maybe there's some little bit of like, well, I just lost. So I'm expected to play the part of the team that lost and sits in the dugout and hangs my head and the cameras find me and sees me just with a vacant thousand year stare. Right. So if you were just to leave right away, then people might think, oh, he didn't want it enough. You know, he's not he's not as devastated as the fans are he just shook it off and and went right back to the clubhouse you have no idea if that person could be breaking down in the clubhouse but if you're there you know with a little uh, watery eye just kind of showing that the moment has gotten to you (laughs) i don't i don't want to say they're all phonies and it's a facade and they're all acting but but maybe there's a little bit of just kind of the kabuki like well we're the losing team we have to look the part of the losing team there's probably some of that i think it's probably just a very um complicated mix for guys. You know, I think that um, there are probably some dudes who are like, let me do this bit of business that I am expected to do. Let me, you know, use this as sort of a marker to move on. And and to be clear, like, if there are guys who do not want to be out there sitting on the rail, like, I don't begrudge them that, right? I don't think there's like a wrong answer here. But yeah, I bet it's a, it really depends on the guy and it's probably a mix of things. And mm-hmm. I'd be curious to 
to hear how aware of our gaze they are in moments like that. Uh, Cause that probably varies guy to guy also. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I bet some of these dudes are like, Oh yeah. Like there's like, there's a camera on me, huh? Mm-hmm. And it takes them a moment for that to like really register. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a, I bet it's a real mix. I know? guess there's a sportsmanship or respect element to it potentially. Like, hey, they won, we lost. I don't want to look like a sore loser yeah. by just booking it out of there, you know, to recognize them, to give them their due. I have to stand and, and wait and take it, you know, yeah. while they celebrate. So maybe maybe that's part of it, not wanting to look petulant by storming right. out of there or something. And... Maybe, I mean, it might just be kind of an interesting thing to see up close, yeah. even even if you're not getting to participate in it. Yep. And even if it's disappointing and wrenching that, that you're not after coming so close, I might just sit there for the spectacle of it. I mean, yep. just, you know, seeing people jump around and do dog piles and everyone's milling on the field. It, it's it's not something, if you've never been in a World Series before, you've you've never seen that from that right. vantage point. And some guys go whole careers without ever being in that situation, yeah. win or lose. So I think I might just want to see it just to kind of be a looky-loo, even if it, yeah, even if it hurt it me. In. Yeah, even if it yeah. hurt even more that, that I could have been the one out there and I'm not. I still think, you know, it's uh, one of a career <laughs> potentially site. So I think I'd rather sit yeah. there and, and see that than go right back to the clubhouse where I've been a billion times. Yeah, I I also think that there's probably a good bit of safety in being in the the losing dugout in that moment because, yeah, the camera pans back to them every now and again. And, you know, we certainly get photos of guys on the rail um, that, you know, the, all the photo services will capture, but the focus really is on the winners in that moment, right? Yeah. And so is your lowest professional moment, and, you know, for some of these guys, maybe it's not their lowest professional moment, you know? Mm-hmm. I Again, I think it probably varies a lot based on your experience of the majors and the pros more generally, but sure, maybe the camera flits to Corbin Carroll for a second, but the guy that everyone really wants to see in that moment is like Corey Seager, right? So mm-hmm. of the public moments you have as a professional athlete, it might be the one of the times when you're kind of the least in focus in a weird way. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I wouldn't really want to be the human counterpoint to that joy, though. <laughs> you right. know, like, I I don't yeah. think I would want to be the dejected looking no. sort of like the sad Keanu meme yeah. for sports, really, where like their famous photos of, of players being upset after losing, like there's a famous one people were posting in this thread of the Royals, Freddie Patek after the 1977 ALCS, where he's alone in the dugout after game five and just has his head like resting on his balled up hands and he just looks so dejected. I don't know that I would want to be the human embodiment of sports yeah. suffering. Like yeah. the Sam recently went back and, and dredged up all the images of sad Clayton Kershaw after yeah. he's been pulled from various unsuccessful postseason starts. Yeah. And as Sam pointed out, like that became a thing at a certain point where yeah. it was almost a meme. It was like, okay, Kershaw got knocked out of the game. Now we need to go find sad Kershaw on yeah. the bench. And sometimes the image that he would pull of sad Kershaw wasn't really representative of how 
how Kershaw was looking all the time. Right. It was just he picked one frame that that right. made him look most sad. So, yeah, I don't know that I would want to be that guy. And I probably wouldn't be that guy because I'm not super demonstrative. So I'd probably be just someone who is sitting there staring expressionalist as opposed yeah. to, yeah, doing like the, the sad Charlie Brown walk out of the dugout or something. There is a a risk, even as I'm saying that, like, there's a safety because it kind of depends. Uh, it depends a lot on, like, how long the absence after that is, right? Like, mm-hmm. that can be a moment that gets turned on its head, you know, maybe even the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden the the highlight is from that to you know, a jubilant Corbin Carroll. I'm just going to use, he's going to be our proxy here, right? Um, He's our avatar in this moment. But you're not guaranteed that. And then, you know, when when droughts stretch and grow, you know, that's the last image you have of the franchise from the previous run of success. And it can get, you know, kind of grim after a Mm -hmm. while. Like, here I was relieved after a year that uh, some other poor franchises home runs allowed to Jordan Alvarez in the postseason. We're going to be on next year's, you know, highlight reel, assuming the Astros make it back. Can you imagine if you were the guy who gets pictured every time they bring up the, you know, the Cubs World Series drought or whatever prior mm-hmm. to them winning in 16? Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> that would, that would sure stink. So, yeah. But I, I just don't think that people, um, think about moments like that in those terms most of the time. I think that they're, you know, it's really hard to to look past anything but that that kind of gulf of sadness you might be mm-hmm. dealing with and really trying to grapple with it. So Yeah, right. People process pain and losing differently. So some people bottle it up and yeah. some people just let it all out immediately and some people it comes out later. Or some people just might feel it more acutely than others if you're talking about losing a loved one or whatever it is. So, so yeah, I don't think there's uh, any wrong reaction. I wonder if it varies based on how you lose that last mm. game. Like if if you got swept, let's say, and it's yeah. game four and you're getting blown out, you know, then you've had hours and days to adjust to the idea that you're probably about to lose. Whereas if you're up in the series, maybe, and you blow a lead or you're winning in that final game, maybe it's a game seven, maybe you have a lead, maybe you lost on a walk off or some terrible come from behind loss from your perspective. I wonder whether that would affect your likelihood of sitting there in the dugout because it's just going to be a more acute reaction, I guess, yeah. if it's if it's sprung on you, if it's a surprise, as opposed to just, you know, you've had some time to to adjust to the idea before that moment actually arrives. But but losing is a natural and inevitable part of being an athlete for mm-hmm. almost everyone, right? So you're yeah. going to find yourself in some situation like that at some point. And yeah, you might as well just uh, sit with that moment and yeah. not not bury it, not try to move on immediately. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a funny, it's a really funny thing that we deal with as people. And like, we can't relate to it in quite the terms that, you yeah. know, a pro athlete would. But, you know, I remember having a conversation with a therapist once where I was like, oh, and I just like, you know, I was feeling dejected about something. And she was like, you know, 
sometimes when people are doing therapy, they have this tendency to pathologize having any feelings at all. Mm. Um, and, you know, feeling sad when something sad happens isn't, you know, an indication of anything being broken. It's an indication right. of things being sad mm-hmm. um, and resisting, kind of letting that feeling in and dealing with it on its own terms can and often is far more damaging than just than um you know sitting with it and having to to feel it you know the only way mm-hmm. out is through a lot of mm-hmm. the time and you have to reckon with the emotional experience in front of you and that again that doesn't mean that that moment has to feel all one way or that it feels all one way for all of these guys or that you can't look back afterward and be like you know we didn't get it done but uh, we sure we sure gave it a good run i'm proud of what we did accomplish like all of that can be true but yeah. i think sitting in that feeling is really important and you know that doesn't mean that sitting on the dugout rail is the only place <laughs> to have that experience by any yeah. means i don't think that they owe us any kind of performance but i can i can imagine having to having to see it you know really having to to see it to be able to deal with it um mm-hmm. i think that yeah. that would be important for me anyway well, this podcast doesn't take the place of therapy, to be no. clear to anyone. But <laughs> if you want some secondhand therapizing, yeah. occasionally you could get some effectively well. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> that therapist would tell you, you got to feel your feelings, you know, you mm-hmm. got to. And having them, that's not a bad thing. It's what you do with them when you get them that tends to determine the path. Well, <sighs> the Milwaukee Brewers experienced a playoff loss recently. On wow. Their own home fields to mm-hmm. the Arizona Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. And now they have experienced another loss because they've been forsaken by yeah. their longtime manager, Craig Council. And the council sweepstakes have had sort of a surprise resolution yeah. to me, at least. Craig Council is staying in the Midwest, staying in the NL Central, but going to the Chicago Cubs, (laughs) who I did not even realize were in the running for Craig Council. So we talked about off-season storylines recently and what we were interested in, and I mentioned Craig Council and where is he going to go, which I said it's unusual to care that much about where a manager (laughs) is going to go. But but it was interesting in his case just because he's been with one team for his whole managerial career, and it was a team he played for and he's beloved and everything and he's had a lot of success and he's kind of the consensus best manager in baseball these days and so he was torn between the Brewers we thought and maybe the Mets where mm-hmm. his old boss David Stearns is now in charge of baseball operations and of course that brings some added pressures and spotlight and attention right. and, <laughs> and just general messiness but also potentially a higher salary and we wondered would that be worth it to him and then he was also up for the Guardians job yeah. he was getting interest from seemingly everyone there was ex- an interest expressed by the Astros I mean anyone who had a vacancy would at least want to kick the tires and touch base with Craig Council. And it was also interesting because it was reported that he wanted to sort of reset the salary scale for managers, whether just because he wanted to make more money himself or because he wanted to help out other managers. I don't know. But it would appear that he has done so successfully because he is going to the Chicago Cubs on a five-year deal per Ken Rosenthal, worth more than $40 million, which is more than $8 million a year, was reported to be the highest salary for a manager ever. 
Yeah. And of course, this means that David Ross is no longer the Chicago Cubs manager, which yeah. we learned, I suppose, at the same time that we learned that Craig Council is their new manager. So what do you make of this little merry-go-round here in the NL Central? Well, I make a couple of things of it. First, mm-hmm. I hope that we didn't learn that Craig Council had become the manager of the Cubs at the same time David Ross learned that yeah. fact, um, <laughs> because that seems like a, a a poor way to treat someone. So I don't want to ascribe that to them because I mm-hmm. don't know. I am. We were talking about this a bit before we got on mic. I am really interested in sort of the process piece of this, which I know is like for Cubs fans are like, Meg, are you serious? That is the least interesting part of this. But <laughs> I am curious about it because there are, you know, some rules of varying degrees of like strictness um, in place to try to encourage hiring processes to uh, consider diverse candidates. And since we didn't know that there was an opening here, we have not heard tell of other candidates being uh, interviewed as potential replacements for us. So I am curious to see sort of like how the Cubs are dealing with the seal role of it all, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is like, you know, even in moments where it's like fun and interesting, it's like, whoa, big division rival move. Oh, my God, we got to put a, a a real like bit of rigor behind how much does he love the Midwest? Like, I, you know, this is an important question for us to get a good answer to and hopefully a, a satisfactory one. So that's yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, it, it reminded me of when the Cubs hired Joe Madden. Yeah who was similarly respected and coveted at the time yeah. after his stint with the Rays. He was looked on as, wow, he's the kind of the, the cream of the managerial crop. And then he went to the Cubs and displaced Rick Renteria. Yeah. And, and I think the Cubs had told Renteria he would be coming back in yeah. 2015. And then they just announced that they had fired him and hired Madden. Yeah. At the same time, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, they I think they offered Renteria to stay on in some other capacity, but how are you going to do that after the team right. does that to you? And then he went to the White Sox. And I think the Rays filed tampering charges yeah. because uh, they suggested that the only reason Madden had become available that he'd opted out was that he knew that the Cubs would offer him a deal that would make mm. him the highest paid manager in the game, right? And right. and Theo said that that wasn't what happened, that he had checked and, uh, you know, he had made sure that Madden was a free agent before talking to him and they cleared the Cubs of that. But but that was sort of a similar case. I mean, different yeah. in the sense that in, in that case, they were not firing a white guy and hiring a, another white guy. And so in, in some ways, it was even more glaring then that, that right. they jettisoned Renteria as soon as Madden became available. Yeah. I guess it worked out okay for them. They did win a World Series. <laughs> That's right. what they wanted to do. And obviously, Cubs feds are hoping that council can deliver another one that yeah. uh, going out and getting the best manager maybe in baseball and also taking him away from a team that has been winning that division often yeah. lately or, or making the playoffs at least. That's, you know, as much as any managerial move can be, that seems like a, a pretty big deal when you consider yeah. just the intra-division ramifications. Yeah, I, I think that that piece of it is is really intriguing. I think that, you know, his stated desire to basically reset and have his salary be a, a rising tide that in theory lifts all ships is an interesting one. I've been really fascinated by how much of the reporting around that question of, of sort of manager and coach 
salaries has put front and center the realization that these folks have had that like they are getting outpaced in many instances by the college game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we can have a, a different conversation, I guess, about like how what it means that like <laughs> Vanderbilt and LSU and Georgia are in a position to pay this much to coaches, but they are in some respects maybe a, a pretty useful foil for MLB staff across the league who are trying to be paid in a way that they feel is commensurate with the value that they're bringing. So there's that piece of it. I think that there is something pretty cool about the guy who who is understood to be the best in the biz and probably has a pretty good idea of what he, how he is perceived really using that leverage not only for his own enrichment, but in a way that is likely to have, you know, important sort of ramifications for the rest of the profession. So, like, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, this says a lot about how nice it is to live in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So there's that piece of it. And I think that, you know, I don't want to take this uh, too far. So, like, um, you know, hang with me for a sec. But mm-hmm. I do think that it is nice to see, even if it's in an area like manager salaries, where, yes, council has set a new sort of standard for what that can look like. He's the highest paid guy. He's still, like barely making reliever money, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, I don't want to overstate the case. This is an area where it's probably easier for a club to um, challenge other teams. But it, you know, it is also nice to see like other clubs are interested in being in some respect a counterweight to Cone and his desire to just spend other teams under the table. Like, mm-hmm. It is nice to see Chicago say like, hey, you know, like we can, we have money too. And then you want to be like, remember that when it comes to all players, please, like, you know, the job's not done. But, you know, for them to to look at that and, and really try to um, sort of punch back, I think is uh, encouraging, even if it's, you know, only a little bit encouraging because I don't want to mm-hmm. be had been i don't want to be Mm -hmm. taken for a fool i'm i'm Mm -hmm. uninterested in that but i think that piece of it is is probably pretty encouraging i do feel bad for david ross man like i don't have a developed a particularly developed opinion about him as a manager he has seemed fine he has seemed fine and you know Mm -hmm. what most managers seem fine like my my take on them is that they're fine um they seem fine and when they're not making like really intense strategic errors, which most of them don't, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're fine. This like it's okay, it's fine. They're like, it's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, Ross was in that group for me where it's like, he's fine. You know, I know that I think, oh gosh, I'm going to forget who it, who it was now. So forgive me. But, you know, it sounds like the way that they have started to position this is just like, well, it was such a, you know, it's not really a statement about David Ross so much as it's a statement about Craig Council and what we think he can do and like his availability was something um, oh you got a statement are you ready we've got a statement here (laughs) I mean it won't be breaking by the time people listen to this but Mm -hmm. this is I'm I'm reading from uh, uh, Megan Montemaro tweet Cubs announced they have fired David Ross and hired Craig Council as your manager Hoyer statement in part 
David's legacy will be felt in Chicago for generations, and his impact on our organizations will stack up with the legends that came before him. And here I'm going to read from the, the more complete statement. Today we made the difficult decision to dismiss David Rass as our major league manager, said Cubs President of Baseball Operations, Chad Hoyer. On behalf of the Cubs organization, we express our deep gratitude for David's contributions to our club, both on the field and off. First as a player and then as manager, David consistently showcased his ability to lead. And then we get the bit about his legacy. Going forward, our major league team will be managed by Craig Council. We look forward to welcoming Craig at Wrigley Field early next week. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that David Russ is not staying in the organization in some other capacity. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ricketts and Hoyer, I think, had given Russ some some statement of support, right? Some, I think that they had implied or strongly suggested that he would be back. This was in early October. Tom Ricketts said, I think Rossi did a great job, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Hoyer, similarly, you know, it, I think it was clear that he probably had to win next year. Like he wasn't on the most solid footing long term. And certainly there were Cubs fans uh, who were ready for a change. But they had both suggested that he would come back next year. And and it wasn't like Craig Council being available was unpredictable. Right. Like he, he could have just resigned and, and never even tested the waters. But I think it was known that his contract was expiring at least and that there was some possibility that he might be seeing what else was out there. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it really is similar to that Madden Renteria situation where yeah. it was like, yeah, you'll, you'll be back. And then, oh, this guy is available now. And that maybe does tell you what people think of Craig Council. I guess he's taking over a team that narrowly missed the playoffs. It was disappointing. They won 83 games. The Brewers, the year before Council was hired, won 82 games, and he didn't immediately deliver them. I guess he was hired in the middle of the 2015 season or or part of the way into that season because Ron Renneke had started that season as the manager. So maybe you can give him a pass for that. Like Council didn't turn them into winners overnight in 2015, they finished fourth. In 2016, they finished fourth. And then they finished second. They didn't actually make the playoffs under him until 2018 when they won that division. But they've had pretty sustained success since then. The salary structure resetting is interesting because managers have become less and less integral or at least emphasized when it comes to team running, right? They're still very important parts of the process, but they're seen more and more as middle managers, as kind of cogs in the machine than people who are deciding a lot of things themselves. It's always a collaborative process now, and the manager is often sort of subordinate to the front office. And so it's an interesting time to say I should be making more than managers ever made. I don't know that this is actually that much more if you were to adjust for inflation, inflation than yeah. some previous might even be less. Uh, right. Not every manager contract is reported, so we it's harder to look up the terms. You know, right. the, the salaries aren't on their baseball reference page or whatever the way that, that we usually can see players instantly. So... I don't know that it's like wildly out of line with uh, some past big manager contracts, right. but 
they must really think council can make a difference because I think more and more, at least front offices, feel like managers are pretty fungible and replaceable and that they're just there to execute the front office's vision and there's less and less autonomy when it comes to transactions, certainly, but even things like lineups and promotions and starting and sitting. And so this is, you know, I guess, again, an endorsement of council if at this time of deprioritizing the manager that right. everyone wanted Craig Council and, and were willing to give him large raises that, that speaks to how he's valued. And it might say something about the distribution of value from the, from the perspective of teams, right? Like we've talked a lot about how you can only, we feel like we're in a position where the stuff that we can evaluate about a manager is the tactical, the strategic, and then we get glimpses of like the people management piece of it. And I think you're right that when it comes to what is generally understood to be like the distribution of strategic talents in the manager set, that it is probably very narrow. You just don't get to stay in that seat for very long if you're like a real stinker. And even the ones who are maybe a little less strategically adept seem to get such profound support from the front office that they're not like in a position to really be able to torpedo their team's fortunes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, which doesn't mean that sometimes you don't walk a guy with the bases loaded or, like, do other weird stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's pretty rare today. But it, it might suggest that there is still a really big well of value that teams see in the ability to do all the stuff we can't see. Yeah. And that you know, in addition to being thought of as a good on-field manager that maybe counsels skill away from the field, or at least away from our view, is really superlative, that that is hard to find, and that it is something that is worth compensation, even if, you know, the rest of the job is, quote-unquote, easier um, yeah. relative to what it's been in years past, or at least not as um, self-directed as it's been in years past. So, right. maybe, you know, maybe that's a piece of this, too, that, like, he is just so good or thought to be so good at the stuff that is, you know, dealing with the ins and outs, the, you know, the people management piece of it, that it's worth $8 million a year. Yeah. Which, again, isn't even really <laughs> reliever much, really. money, you yeah. know? Like, mm -hmm. it's depending on how you want to peg it and what number you're using, like, kind of a a one win number, right? Yeah. Like um, yeah. if you want to think about it in terms of player salary. So yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, the Joe Jimenez signing last time, right? So he got 26 million for three years. Okay. He didn't get as many years as council, but on a per year basis, he got basically the same amount, right. if not more. So, so we're talking about the very best at his profession getting that much versus uh, okay pretty good reliever i guess right. kind of generic decent reliever getting that kind of money so yeah it's uh, important to keep that in mind and also even as some aspects of the manager's traditional job have been de-emphasized there has been more of an emphasis on player development at the right. major league level just yeah. the idea that players are not finished products when they get there and so the manager is in some part responsible for continuing to improve those players or at least put them in a position to improve. I don't know if you would say that 
player development at the big league level was necessarily the hallmark of council's time in Milwaukee. I'm sure there were some successes there, but that is something managers are being asked to do. It maybe not necessarily like be there in the bullpen session or the batting cage and and be giving them pointers, but set up a staff at least that that right. is capable of finding ways to help players improve and being open to that input and feedback from the front office and all the various liaisons and supporting front office types who tend to travel with teams these days and just be part of that pipeline for providing information. I don't know that a manager can do that on their own, but they could certainly be an obstacle and an yeah. impediment to that flow of information if they decide to be. So presumably counsel is seen as uh, someone who can help with that too. It seems like the Brewers made him an offer, unsurprisingly, but it topped out at 5.5 per year. Yeah. So we talked last time about the Brewers uh, trading Mark Canna instead of picking up that option and what that portended for Brewers spending and competitiveness in the near future. And I, I guess you could – no one really would have expected them to – match the Mets or the Cubs bid for bid probably but here's a, another indication that uh, they are not playing or trying to play in the same sandbox yeah although I think we should be fair to them and also say that like that constituted a meaningful raise for him mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. relative to what he had been making on his prior contract so yep. I think it was more than the old college try on their yeah. part um, and we don't know what opportunities they were afforded to counter and you know again these are pieces of the process story that I'm really interested in hearing but the point you make about player dev is a good one because if I'm you know, we can say what we want about the manager piece, but as I think through, you know, coaching, members of coaching staffs being quoted, you know, like I know Bob Nightingale had a piece in USA Today on this question about the the difference in the college ranks. Like that is a place where I think if I'm an enterprising pitching coach or hitting coach, like that's, I think, probably really where the rubber meets the road in being able to leverage college salaries and college this and that to to try to extract more money at the big league level. Because as college teams are putting a greater emphasis on development themselves, it's like, well, do you really want me to go be, you know, LSU's pitch? Yeah. Do you want me to run their pitching lab? Or would you like mm -hmm. to pay me another $500,000 a year and I'll stay here and help right. your big league team be good? You yeah. know, so it isn't just the effect that this has on the manager role specifically, but I think these guys and gals um, seeing the value that they can bring to different aspects of the organization, some of which are going to have, I think, a lot more tangible um, sort of evidence to put forth and say, here's how I helped that guy get better. Here's what I said to do. Here's what he did. And here were the results as, you know, as he implemented that, in, that plan. Like in some ways they have a an easier case to make, even if it is, you know, operating in a lower salary band to say like, hey, you know, mm -hmm. I'm the pitching coach for X club. And and we've seen defections there, right? We've seen big league teams in the last year, like lose key members of their dev staff to the college ranks, like the Mariners, you know, mm -hmm. their, their guy just left. So yeah. I hope that one of the impacts of this isn't just felt in manager salaries, but across all of these coaching staffs, because the SEC means business. Yeah, and right. <laughs> they will pay you 
commensurate with the business they mean, which is <laughs> real business, Ben. Yeah, um, although so, I guess at the major league level, coaching staffs keep expanding and in the minors too. So they're just right. more and more coaches. Maybe individually right. they're not making as much or they're not making more. But I guess you could say that their duties are a little more specific or strictly defined or, you know, you you don't just have a pitching coach now, you have an assistant pitching coach or you have right. multiple assistant pitching coaches in addition to the pitching coach, right? So so there has been that kind of growth, but it's it's maybe not enriching any any one coach. And it's going to push and pull against, you know, what the future size of the minor leagues is, right? Mm-hmm. We know that we won't see contraction for an, a further contraction for another 5 years, but you have to think that when the MILB CBA runs out that you know, the league will endeavor again to reduce the size of farm systems, although maybe that puts a greater emphasis on continued development at the big league level, I don't know. But there's push and pull to be had here and not everyone is going to be as is going to be equally regarded right mm-hmm. not everyone i think will be able to exercise leverage to the same degree but yeah it's there's, there's it's an yeah. interesting time MLB trade rumors reminded me that Joe Torre earned $8 million in 2007, apparently. So this is really just bringing things back to what they were then for one guy, according to some other reporting here. Terry Francona may have been the highest paid manager in 2023, and he was making 4.5. So that does kind of go along with what I was saying about maybe the role of the manager or the importance of the manager changing and declining and thus the amount that teams are willing to pay managers also (laughs) declining in a way that's kind of commensurate with that. So council's kind of going against those headwinds here that there's really been just a a flatlining. There's been a stagnation in managerial salaries. So he is the unicorn, I guess, the one who is able to to beat that trend. And speaking of Terry Francona and the Guardians, Francona retired. He has now been replaced as well. Craig Council was not the only managerial hiring. Stephen Vogt, the legend Stephen Vogt, is now a major league manager as he was foretold to be for so long, right? And they have hired him now after, what, just one year as a Mariners coach? Was that, that was all it was, right? Correct. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was playing in 2022 and then he was a Mariners coach and he was always seen as a future manager and now he is a, a present manager for the Guardians. So they're they're going from the ultimate experienced, been around the block, potential Hall of Fame guy to a rookie, <laughs> rookie manager yeah. who's just 39 years old, just turned 39 last week. But it is a happy birthday for Stephen Vogt, who's probably making considerably less money than Craig Council. But yeah. maybe, you know, I believe is his nickname. Maybe people will believe in him. He'll have a run of success with them that'll turn him into the next Craig Council. But maybe. yeah, I mean, people always expect it. He was like your classic. He'll yes. be a manager, one guy kind of catcher. And here he is. Yeah, he, um, I don't know him personally. It's rare that you hear someone be like kind of uniformly and universally praised by by the folks who have worked with him and, and a lot of different kinds of roles. Um, but yeah, he's thought to be a very good guy. So um, mm-hmm. 
I'm unsurprised that even given the recent proximity of his retirement and the limited amount of coaching experience that he has, Mm -hmm. that he found his way into a managerial role. You know, we'll have to see like what that really looks like and how it goes because, you know, there are a lot of good guys who wouldn't be great major league managers. So who Mm -hmm. knows? I don't know what we're going to get. But yeah, he, he has been thought to be sort of in position for that with for someone for a long time. And uh, even if I didn't think it would happen quite so fast, I'm not ultimately that surprised. Yeah. Really rapid ascent, but but not a super surprising ascent. So they had obviously been interested in council too, but uh, vote seems like a strong consolation prize. And we'll see, like there have been some managers uh, who've been seen as great managerial prospects and just jumped really quickly from playing to managing. And sometimes they're growing pains there. Yeah. And some guys have had zero managing experience or even coaching experience. Yeah. He has no professional managing experience at at the major league level. So, you know, you can't always uh, just bank on someone stepping into that role and and being great from day one. There's definitely a learning curve there, even if it's someone who's been seen as a future manager for years now. So we'll see how that goes. But but he seems to have the traits, the raw materials. And we've kind of gone through cycles where it's like, you know, a bunch of older veteran retread types get hired and then there's a trend toward younger guys who can connect with the players more easily because they're like the same age or maybe are just more resigned to working with front offices in the way that that veteran managers who predated the sabermetric age might not be as comfortable with. And so it was seen as like, oh, they'll just be kind of the, the pawns of the front office would be the the pessimistic spin, but they won't hold out for the authority that earlier managers might have assumed was was uh, something they could count on. So yeah, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Well, and we should say who the Mets hired. Oh yeah, okay, go ahead. Because <laughs> <laughs> like you know, the place that we thought this day would end would be maybe the Mets saying, hey, we have hired Craig Council, but instead they hired um, Carlos Mendoza, who's been yeah. uh, the bench coach for the Yankees for a while. So mm-hmm. that was the direction that that they ended up going, which I don't know. Again, like it is interesting that of the three that we've learned about in the last couple of days that, yeah, he has the like the second most. He's not been a manager, but like bench coach is like manager in training, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a you know, that's the person who takes over when the manager gets mad and gets ejected. And if you (laughs) worked for the Yankees for a while, that happened a lot, you (laughs) know, like he's been, he's been called upon, I imagine quite a bit given Mm -hmm. Aaron Boone's, um, you know, he also feels his feelings, put it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. and lets you know. So yeah, they, they hired Mendoza. Yeah. So it's just all the managerial business of being taken care of at once. I guess this was a case. Yes and no, right? Yeah. (laughs) This is uh, maybe kind of a case of like one guy holding up business. Not that it's been a long time. The season just ended. But when when everyone wants one guy, then you kind of have to wait to see where that one guy is going to go before you decide what else you're going to do. Yeah. And, you know, we still have uh, a few vacancies remaining across the league, right? So the Astros don't have a manager. The mm-hmm. Padres still don't have a manager. Obviously, the Brewers, how mm-hmm. could I forget? Well, yeah. it's very new, you know, officially. Yes. So yes. I'm forgiven. And then the Angels. Um, the Angels, so we yes. So st- we still have a couple of um, 
of seats that have not yet found a new occupant. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. I imagine that it'll kind of speed up from here, given that council has been sorted. So, yeah. Yeah, Mendoza's taking over for Showalter, who has been connected to that Angels job. Apparently, he just reached out and was like, yeah, I want this job. And everyone else is like, no, thank you. <laughs> that just tells you Buck Showalter must really like managing, even after yeah. all these years, because that's not the ideal situation. I mean, both with Artie Moreno and also just with the fact that the Angels have not been able to put a winning team together and don't seem to be getting closer to that with Otani as a free agent. So you could see if, if you're Showalter, you're like, yeah, I really just want to win that World Series and there are only 30 of these jobs. But that doesn't seem like it's one that's going to get you closer to a championship mm -mm. unless you, you really stick around for quite a while or or you're a really amazing manager. So, yeah. but, you know, maybe he just really, really likes doing it. And he he's uh, been fired plenty of times before and changed <laughs> teams plenty of times before. So I guess he's like, hey, if it happens again, I've been through that before. So whatever. <laughs> but... <laughs> What a what a way to put that, Ben. What a way to put that. Did you yeah. see that Phil Nevin was a name that had emerged in the pottery search? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. definitely the vibes you want to fix the bad vibe situation, I think. <laughs> yeah, Carlos Mendoza, minor league player, not a major league player. Right. Always interested in those guys. And also, we got a, an email from listener Aaron who said something I found particularly interesting about the vote hire mm. is that he played for six teams being a utility catcher naturally, but Cleveland was not one of them. And he said it's obviously common for longstanding catchers to ultimately manage in the big leagues, but it seems less likely for a former player who made that many rounds to end up somewhere he didn't play, which it is sort of surprising, right? Because like at all his stops, it was like, oh yeah, this is future manager material. And yet right. all those former teams he had did not hire him to be their manager. Now, maybe there wasn't a vacancy at, at the right time, right? right. But, but yeah, you would have thought it would be one of the teams that experienced that up close and personal, you know, yeah. firsthand, that he would have just graduated right into that role. I was almost surprised when he went to the Mariners to coach instead right. of the A's, or just sticking around where he was or where he had been. So, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a little unusual, maybe. It yeah, it is It is a bit surprising that that's how that worked out. I hadn't really thought of that until we got yeah. that email. And I was like, and, and in part because maybe I was like, has, wasn't he with the Guardians at one point? I think that if you had asked me to name, like I, I obviously knew, you know, about the Tampa piece of it. And I knew about the Oakland piece. And I remembered weirdly, like the Arizona piece. But if you had asked me to name, you know, Milwaukee, and the Giants and the Braves, I bet I would have gotten those wrong. So, you know, I, I would have said, oh, yeah, you remember his half season stint with Cleveland? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would have been wrong about it, Ben. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, and Aaron included a list of managers and where they played, especially the, the journeyman managers yeah. like Alex Cora played for six teams. Right. He spent four seasons in Boston. Mark Kotze played for seven teams, but he had four seasons in Oakland where he's right. the manager. Aaron Boone played for six teams, but he had one very memorable season with the Yankees, right? And I guess there's Tori Lovello 
played mm-hmm. for seven teams, but not the Diamondbacks. But he, he, his career barely overlapped with the Diamondbacks. So that's right. a little bit different, little I different. think. And, yeah. and then we don't even have to go very far. David Ross played for seven yeah. teams, including, of course, a couple in Chicago. And David Bell is one. He played for six teams, but did not play for the Reds, mm. which you kind of might think, didn't he at some point? But, yeah. but <laughs> no, I mean, even Bob Nelvin played for seven seasons. He played or he played three seasons in San Francisco. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, Davey Martinez played for nine teams and four seasons in, in Washington or Montreal. Mm-hmm. So... Most of them, it seems like they did kind of map on to where they ultimately played, but yeah. uh, but not in this case. But I guess word traveled about just right. how well-liked vote was. I think part of it, you know, a big part, not, obviously not everyone on that list that you just named was a catcher, but like for catchers, I don't know, you just feel like they bop around so much, it seems, because if you are remotely productive as a big league catcher, you're probably going to be able to find a job. And so, yeah, I think it can lend this impression that like, yeah, that guy was there for, you know, like a mm-hmm. post-deadline kind of moment, yeah. even if he in fact was not, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I misspoke, by the way. Melvin played for seven teams, not seven seasons. He played mm. for 10 seasons. Yeah. And yeah, he has, uh, I'll, I'll link to all of the research that Aaron did here. It's not it's not unique, but it is somewhat unusual. Yeah. So I guess the other hiring bit of news is that the Marlins hired a replacement for Kim Ang. Yeah. And they did not go outside of Florida to mm-hmm. find one. They have hired Peter Bendix, yeah. the former Rays general manager. And he has uh, now ascended to a pobo. Role. Pobo. He's uh, Pobo of the Marlins. Like Breslow, Craig Breslow in Boston, he went from assistant GM straight to Pobo. He Pobo. just skipped GM. But yeah. I guess Bendix was the GM in Tampa. I mean, it just it just tells you how much every owner covets a raise executive because mm. it's like, I want to win and also I don't want to spend much money. So where am I going to go? I'm going to go get a raise person who has done that there. And sometimes that works out great and sometimes not so great. Although apparently Heim Bloom was maybe their top choice for this job. Oh, really? And I didn't see that part. Yeah, that they were very interested in in Bloom as well. So I guess the Bloom is not off the rose when it comes to oh, Heim boy. and his prospects for, for getting, hey, we already used that as a, I think I that was our episode title. It might just have calling been. back to the first time we used I, that, that terrible. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm mostly just conscious of how bad an influence I've been on you, yeah. you know? Like, it I don't know that it's worked you. out great for you hanging out yeah. with me so much. Yeah, but Bendix, uh, I mean, I knew of him as a, a blogging type, yeah. much, much like Heim Blog Bloom. Blog <laughs> Assemble. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, Bendix was a beyond the box score SB Nation guy back in the day, right? So he was, you know, sort of running in some of the same circles. And some of those people are running teams now. <laughs> and we're, we're still hosting this baseball podcast. <laughs> well, I was feeling fine about myself until you said that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, to be clear, I, I chose this course. And, uh, uh-huh. and and I'm happy about it and also don't think that I would be running a team necessarily if I had stuck with the, the team track. But but it is <sighs> striking when yeah. kind of your your peers, your cohort are yeah. uh, now like, oh, a Pobo. Peter Bendix Pobo. is a Pobo now. <laughs> 
Yeah, geez. I wonder if, what is the, I mean, like, I guess the Povo equivalent uh, on the writing and editing side would be editor-in-chief, and we've never mm. had an editor-in-chief. Yeah, you're, you're managing editor. You you got to get the promotion to ENC, then you'll be the Povo of Fangraphs. Yeah, Povo. Povo. <laughs> I, uh, I, but we wouldn't call it a Povo, and like, no. EIC isn't as fun to say. That sounds yeah. like a doctor thing, if anything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, Povo, Ben. Povo, Povo. Yep. Now we need, we need, um, (laughs) you started it, so I get to make this joke. So now we need um, the Marlins to be really interested in a a player whose last name is uh, Beckham. And then we can have a a Bendix-like Beckham um, (laughs) uh, uh, headline. Um, I'm like, I'm laying claim to that. It's like when there's a a plate of cupcakes and you lick one to make sure that everyone (laughs) knows that one's mine. Mm-hmm. Um, if that ever transpires, then you get to use that hello Google. Just look, ah, mine. <laughs> so we'll see. We, he's uh, he's going from a team that doesn't spend a lot to another team that doesn't spend a lot. Yeah. Whereas you had Andrew Friedman goes to the Dodgers, and suddenly he can run higher payrolls, or Heim Bloom higher payrolls, maybe not as high as the Red Sox had before. Mm-hmm. But between. Those guys and then Matt Arnold with the Brewers, James Click, formerly of the Astros. There's just a Rays executive tree where like that's what you want if you're an owner, especially if you're an owner that doesn't spend that much. And you're like, Mm -hmm. can I get the results of the other Florida team without spending more? That would be nice. Maybe I'll just go hire one of their people and and they can do that for me. So I don't know. It's uh, hard to say, obviously, anything about a specific executive who is just part of a larger front office that has been successful. But obviously, if you're a Marlins fan who uh, was looking enviously at the success and the track record of the other Florida team, well, now you went out and got someone from that team. So we'll see if that is sufficient. (laughs) I think there's probably other work that needs to be done to turn the the Marlins into a second race. Yeah, I uh, think that's right. Man, people who can deal with humidity, what's that like? You know, what? (laughs) Yeah. Like you're, you're, you're saying... I at least don't mind, you know, or I don't mind it so much that I won't be a, a pobo, pobo, mm-hmm. Ben, yeah. pobo, po- pobo, po- <laughs> Bendix is a, a couple years older than I am, but he he started as an intern in 2009 with the wow. Rays, which was the same year that I was interning for mm. the Yankees. And, uh, you know, <laughs> to th- our, our roads diverged from there somewhat. <laughs> but I think I think he, of you as the pobo of this podcast, Ben. Does that oh, make thanks. you feel better? Yeah, yeah you're the nice. you're, you're the pobo. I'm the GM, you know, does that? Uh, I don't know. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that means uh, no other competing baseball podcast can hire me away unless they invent a new title for me that's even higher than Pobo. Yeah, like, um, you know, galactic emperor mm-hmm. um, of podcasting. That would be one that you might be interested in because it feels like it's from Star Wars, even if, sure. um, you know, I don't know if it's quite, did he did he call himself the galactic emperor? He just called himself the emperor, right? Yeah, like think, there was no I galactic think... in there. That was sort of implied. It was implied, right? It was the yeah. galactic empire, but right. uh, yeah, you're the emperor of the galactic empire. You're you're just yeah, you're the, you're the galactic emperor by default, I suppose. Yeah, you're you're the 
the Pobo of this uh, <laughs> terrible Death Star, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's been there for so long that he's really steeped in the Ray's way of doing things. That's like mm. almost going back to the beginning of the Ray's being good. Yeah. So totally inculcated in, in the Ray's uh, operations and uh, we'll be bringing that knowledge with him to Miami. So... I guess that brings us to the end of our uh, front office and managerial transactions and, and hiring news. And so there's only one bit of transaction news for players that piqued my interest, caught my eye, mm -hmm. and it was the Padres declining Michael Waka's option mm. for two years and $32 million because that was kind of in the Mark Canna class of maybe this tells us something about right. how this team is going to operate because yeah. otherwise you'd think Michael Waka on that contract would be someone you would want to have, right? Yeah. Especially if you're the Padres and, yeah. and you are losing some players to free agency and yeah. you have some vacancies in your starting rotation and yeah. Waka was pretty good for them. You know, he's yeah. been pretty good the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. He's been around 130 innings and around 130 ERA plus. So you'd think you'd want more of that. And they decided no, which maybe tells you something or reinforces something that we already had an indication of, which is that the Padres are tightening the purse strings yeah. just a, a tad potentially here. So that may make you think that that one Soto trade, like, yeah, man. I don't want to say it's inevitable, but it, it certainly seems like, I mean, John Becker of Fangraphs tweeted this, that the Padres were at a $197 million payroll and reportedly they've wanted to be at 200 mm -hmm. and they seem to need some pitching health, right? Yeah. Because like almost half of their innings from this season hit free agency yeah, <laughs> and they elected to let Waka leave. Yeah. So... If they are going to import some pitching and also want to stay around 200, I don't know how that really are gonna do that? leaves payroll room for Juan Soto. So. Yeah. Oh, boy. Wow. That'll be sort of a sad end to it if that's mm -hmm. what it comes to, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Bit of a deflating parting if that's what happens. But then we would have another one Soto sweepstakes to talk about and speculate oh, about. Boy. So that would add some intrigue to the offseason, especially because the class of position players is so yeah, thin. Yeah, so poor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that one is Soto a, into that. It's like, yeah. okay, that's yeah, interesting. That, that does change the uh, <laughs> dynamic ever so slightly if you yeah. can go from uh, a Soto-less experience to a Soto-full experience. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like you would imagine that it would be an interesting push and pull because you're only getting him for a year. So that clearly makes him less valuable than the last time around from a like prospect return perspective and like his seasons have been kind of weird but he's still been very he's still been a very good hitter but mm -hmm. also if you're guaranteed to get him for the full year rather than waiting around to the deadline and there aren't a lot of position players like that's pretty exciting plus you know depending on what you think of him long term we talked at the time of his potential trade like does this put a team sort of on the inside track to be able to ink him to a deal. And I think that we at the time said, you know, he's a Boris guy. They don't tend to do extensions. And when they do, they tend to be huge. And so does that even really matter very much? But maybe 
you know, if you're his representation and you're him, your understanding of what his ultimate free agent market is going to look like might be a little bit different than it was. So I don't mm-hmm. know, that would be fascinating. So I'm voting. I Well, I don't want to like d- deprive Padres fans of Juan Soto. That feels unkind, but mm-hmm. it would be nice to have something like that to talk about. So, you know, the podcaster's curse, man. Like, yeah. We just end up being weird little vultures at times, don't we, Ben? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're the pobo of the vultures. Yeah, we we want to live in interesting times. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll save my Soto Voce headline for the, whatever episode when when we really talk about Soto Ooh, trade rumors if that comes nice. along. Yeah. Yeah. It just occurred to me there are a lot of Yankees fans who do not. They do want Juan Soto, to be clear, but they do not want Aaron Boone, and mm. uh, they are seemingly stuck with him. I wonder yeah. whether it's it's more frustrating that they had a managerial prospect, Boone's number two, the bench coach behind Boone, who was yeah. seen as such an appealing manager that the crosstown rivals would hire yeah. him. Like, like if Carlos Mendoza goes on to be super successful with yeah. the Mets— and the past three Mets managers have lasted two years apiece. So yeah. he's going to hope to extend that. Do but a little bit better, yeah. Yeah, if he has some success and some staying power, then I wonder if Yankees fans who are frustrated with the staying power of Boone, whether they're feeling extra frustrated because it's like, oh, the next in line, right. the guy who was seen as manager material, now he's gone and the Mets got him even. <sighs> And we're still stuck with Boone. To be clear, I don't know that Boone is a bad manager. I just know that a lot of Yankees fans are convinced that he is. So oh, I yeah. People have <laughs> yeah. things to say. They got right. some stuff to say, Ben. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. that the Yankees, if they had made a change, whether they would have hired Carlos Mendoza or promoted him. Who knows yeah. if they saw him that way or not. But sure. But yeah, the fact that another organization and a rival, one no less crosstown rival, thought so highly of Carlos Mendoza that they wanted him to be the manager. Wonder if that gets the goat of Yankees fans who are had enough of the the Boone and the Boone Cashman tenure. I don't. Yeah, that's a great point. I boy, they sure have. They have a lot of things to say about Aaron Boone, don't they? They do. They, they do. really do. It's always interesting. Like when you know, often when internal candidates like that find their way to managerial openings in other organizations. I think the the general perception of the manager who remains is um, more universally favorable than it is with Boone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a kind of an interesting wrinkle to add yeah. to all of this. Can I ask you an unrelated question? Mm-hmm. Have you ever said Michael Waka's name without thinking Waka 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 immediately <laughs> no. after? I don't think I have a, even one time in my entire life. I've always thought Waka Waka Waka. Naturally. Yeah. All naturally. right. I have one more thing to ask you. It's related to an email. It's kind of topical. Are you following the NBA in-season tournament at all? Which is, that is the name of it. It's it's not the NBA in-season tournament called X. It is just called the NBA in-season tournament. But it's a, a brand new thing that the NBA is running during this regular season. I have heard tell of it. Mm-hmm. I know it exists. But yeah. the thing that I have mostly been thinking about when it comes to NBA basketball is is Wemby. So of course. Um, tell, tell me a tale, Ben. Yes. Tell me a well, tale of the tournament. <laughs> since we have already discussed Wemby briefly, this was a question from Jason who said, 
in light of the NBA's inclusion of the new in-season tournament, what would you think if this idea were added to MLB as well? If it's a success in that league, I wouldn't be surprised to see something like it implemented since Rob Manfred is clearly willing to implement rule changes geared toward creating a more entertaining quote-unquote product. Mm. My biggest problem with the NBA's idea is that the cash prizes for players don't seem like a great motivation. Is a player making tens of millions of dollars a year really going to care that much about a 200K cash prize or 500K? And why should I as a fan celebrate my favorite millionaires making more money? If the in-season tournament was added, incentives should be added to make it worthwhile for both fans and players. Is this a good idea at all? So... The NBA in-season tournament, as I understand it, is partly a response to the fact that the NBA regular season really was losing a lot of luster in Mm. recent years, especially partly because of load management, Mm. which the league is also trying to crack down on now. They've come out and said, actually, there are no studies that suggest that load management actually prolongs your career or enhances your performance, which was uh, previously believed to be true and, and is still believed by many to be true. And now there are all these rules and recommendations about how often you can rest superstars and if you can rest them on the same days and in the same games because it was turning into the situation where it was almost like a status symbol if you would get an off day. It was right. like a sign that, that okay, you're elite, right? And, and you're saving yourself for the playoffs. And because so many stars were doing that, often, you know, in NBA games, if you rest one or two stars, that's like a big chunk of your team. You know, it's right. not as big a deal in baseball when right. you have more more players on the field. There aren't so many on the floor. So they're trying to make the regular season more interesting. And it's been a lot less interesting because... Even though it doesn't go on as long as MLB's regular season in terms of games, you know, it's like half as many games, but that's still more than it needs to be. It's like overdetermined because in basketball, it's not as random as MLB. And so like a a best of seven series in the NBA playoffs the favorite is going to win so much more often than a best of seven in MLB where you'd need to play many, many, many multiples of of seven to get the same predictive power. And it's the same thing with the regular season where you just don't need that many games to determine who the right. best teams are. And so people were, were getting less interested in kind of tuning out in November, December before you got close to the playoffs. And meanwhile, the NBA is negotiating gigantic media deals and broadcast packages. And so they want to zhuzh it up a little bit. They want right. to add a little intrigue to suggest that, oh, actually, people will watch the November and December games. So pay us a ton of money for the broadcast rights to those games, too. So that's part of the motivation. Basically, this is the format I'm just going to read from Wikipedia. So it's sort of like in tournaments that they play in soccer in Europe or in the WNBA, I believe, where each conference gets divided into three groups of five teams each. So six groups total. And then it's a round robin. So like Tuesdays and Fridays this month feature Uh each team playing one game against each of the other teams in their group, two at home and two on the road. The games still count as regular season games. So it's not, yeah, it's not like a separate 
tournament that they don't stop the regular season and say, we're going to go play this tournament and then we'll resume. It counts towards the regular, regular season, but it's also a tournament. And four teams from each conference advance to a single elimination tournament. And then the three pool winners, it's the three pool winners with the group runner-up as a wild card. And then I guess they play a semifinals and finals in Vegas. And then... As Jason said, there are cash prizes. Basically, all it is is bragging rights and cash prizes for the players. So the players on the championship team each receive $500,000, which doesn't sound like that much. (laughs) It's, I guess, about as much as someone who's like on the back of a bench would be making for a full season. So for them, it's meaningful. Like it's, it's close to the minimum salary for a season. But for your superstars, it's not going to be a big raise on a percentage basis. And then the players on the two losing teams in the semifinals get 100000 each, and the players on the four losing teams in the quarters get 50000 each. So it's not an enormous amount of money, and it also just is counted as regular season games. So it's, it's kind of odd. I think there are some fans who are wondering, like, why is this happening? Like, why right. should I care about this? And I think a big part of it is just that the players are, in theory, more motivated to play their hardest for these games because of either wanting to win a tournament or just getting a a raise, which for some players might be meaningful. And it's weird because, like, they're playing on these courts that are kind of garishly colored. And so that's become a meme, like people's eyes being burned by the courts that indicate that these are tournament games and not just regular, regular season games. So they're still sort of figuring it out. And I think they're trying to tinker with this and see whether it works. Like they considered other incentives, like maybe you'd get a guaranteed playoff appearance or draft picks or cap exceptions or something. And at least for this first time around, it's just cash prizes for players. So I don't know how interesting that is, but (laughs) how do you, how do you feel about this for MLB, which has an extremely long regular season with a ton of games? I do wonder, like, does it being about money really address, like, provide any sort of powerful incentive for the load management stuff? Because aren't the guys who are most often getting games off because of load management, like, the LeBrons of the world? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what it, what does LeBron care about a <laughs> tournament check? Right. right. Like, I don't, I, you know, and I don't say that to, like, doubt his competitive spirit or anything like that. No. But it's like, if the primary motivation is is supposed to be like you get an additional financial incentive and the the secondary motivation is you win this like in-season tournament. Don't you, if you're like a very good veteran player who is trying to like do load management to, to balance your health versus wanting to win in the regular season, say like, you know, what would really be nice is to win like an NBA championship and right. load management might help me do that. Now, like yeah. I haven't looked at the the stuff that you're referring to about um, whether load management 
works or not. It does make sense that like having time off every now and again will probably help you, especially if you're an older player. So like Mm -hmm. intuitively that feels like, um, it's wrong, but like, I don't know, like, you know, sometimes your intuition is wrong too. So who do I know? Right. But all of this is happening against the backdrop of, yeah, we're negotiating rights deals and we want to get an enormous windfall. And so we we can't have players just not playing a lot of the time and the games get boring because the people you want to see are not in those games or they're not trying very hard so they're trying to counteract that however they can yeah and like i i guess i get that i mean like i get why they're doing it i don't mm-hmm. really have right. like a developed opinion about it i don't know i i think that wanting to inject the regular season with additional meaning is nice and i want teams to feel like they have a powerful incentive to win. But when I think about the stuff that gets in the way of like a competitive landscape that maybe lives up to what I want, I don't think that the problem is that like players are improperly incentivized to do well on their own. You know, Mm -hmm. the things that get in the way of competitive balance and in general, like we've talked about this, like the league has pretty good competitive balance, but but, 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 like, Mm -hmm. you know, The thing that is contributing to, I don't know, like the A's and the Rockies and the Royals and the White Sox losing 100 games or more, that's not because like the folks playing for the Royals are improperly incentivized to win. And if you gave them an extra X amount of money, they'd be more incentivized to win. Like that's Mm -hmm. not how I, I think it plays out in baseball you know the the issues are broader if for no other reason than you have just so many more guys and the impact that an individual player can have is is somewhat limited so you do have to sort of like build rosters that are more competitive front to back and you want good players in that mix right it's helpful to have a a Corey Seager right Mm -hmm. but Corey Seager on his own can't do it. And so, you know, when we talk about trying to get teams to really commit to putting a quality product on the field, we're talking about something much broader than that. And I don't think that, like, financial incentives are really all, uh, you know, like, the guys who play for the A's are trying. It's not that they aren't trying. That's not where our problem comes in, right? So Yeah. Yeah, we have talked about people have asked us about – Having some sort of international tournament that is not the WBC, but like having the World Series winner play the Japan Series winner, that kind of thing, right? Or having having something that uh, has like teams from the leagues playing each other, not just players every few years matching up in the WBC. And... In theory, something like that sounds like it would be fun, but then it's always like, well, when do you host it and where do you host it and how do you not have it interrupt the respective regular seasons of those teams and you can't really do it before the season because uh, then guys are trying to get ready. That's always the issue with the WBC. And then you can't really have it after the season because everyone's tired and they're just going to want to go home and they're going to be fatigued at that point anyway. So baseball already takes up so much of the schedule and the calendar that it's hard to find a time that is not already occupied by baseball that would work for players. This kind of tournament i mean if you were to just like break in the middle of the season and do a little round robin or something instead of the all-star break or 
along with the All-Star break. Maybe, maybe that could be kind of interesting. If I were an NBA fan, I don't think I would be super intrigued by at least this implementation of the in-season tournament idea. I might be kind of confused about why I should care about this. (laughs) But, But it's true that there are a lot of games in the regular season that don't have high stakes. Yeah. Although that's especially true, I guess, late in the season when some teams are already eliminated or you have some idea about whether, because like the fact that this is happening so early in the NBA season is sort of jarring. It's like the the regular season just started. You're you're already throwing these bells and whistles at us. Like when MLB starts its season and opening day happens, I'm good for a while. I'm happy to have baseball back and be a daily staple again. And I, I don't necessarily need something at that point that's going to increase my interest because I'm already interested. But then right. maybe I'm not the sort of follower of the sport <laughs> that uh, that the league has to be concerned about not paying attention, right? So this is for yeah. the more casual people who might not be tuning in and might be saying it's a super long season and these games in April or May don't mean all that much individually in the grand scheme of things. I, I do worry sometimes when we get these questions where it's like, do we just suffer from from sicko syndrome? Like mm-hmm. it's like this, I don't need this because like I'm already you know pot committed to the mm-hmm. <laughs> to the whole endeavor. But it does seem weird to be like, no, these games are different. How? Well, the court hurts your eyes to look at mostly. <laughs> right. Like that yeah. seems like a weird. It's like, are you doing it or not? You know, yeah. what about this is really different? And again, like I don't know the financial incentive piece of it might play differently for the NBA than it does for MLB. I don't, I don't know, but something like this is maybe putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think something exactly like this would be all that compelling, but it is a very long season. So if there were one way to spice it up or, I mean, you know, we've talked about lottery systems. We've Mm -hmm. talked about Sam's proposal back in the day where like everyone makes the playoffs and you start kind of uh, playing a tournament earlier and everyone has a shot at it. It's just harder for some teams. There are various things you could do, but I at least like that the regular season is just the steady background Hum. Yeah. It's just the soundtrack to your summer. And yeah, it's really long. And I certainly see the arguments for shortening the regular season, especially if you're going to just place so much emphasis on the playoffs and let right. so many teams into the playoffs and yeah. have people chalk up who wins the playoffs, make that so meaningful, then why are we going through this six-month tease before we even get to that point to try to determine who the better teams are? So, yeah, maybe you might just shorten the regular season sooner than you would actually like have some sort of sideshow running alongside it. I think it's a worthy it's a worthy question. I just don't like this answer. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the WBC rules. So like we and everyone got super into it, especially this past spring. And I have advocated. I said the WBC should be every year. Just Mm -hmm. do it every year. Don't make us wait three or four in between. This is so much more fun than spring training. Right. So so I'm into that because spring training is 
kind of boring, right? Like right. you get excited when pitchers and catchers report because, oh, it's a milestone. We're closer to the end of the offseason. And then when they start playing spring training games, maybe you're excited for a day and, oh, it's actual baseball. But then it goes on for four weeks, six weeks, right. whatever it is. And it's just it's dull. Right. And you don't care about what's happening other than if someone gets hurt, <laughs> basically. So so during that time, then it makes sense to do something sexier, do something that you're actually going to tune in to see that has stakes. For me, at least, the regular season is stakes enough. But but yeah, not necessarily for everyone. It's a lot of inventory, all those teams, all those games, all those months. So that is a, a big asset for baseball. And I'm sure if they could make it an even bigger asset, they would not be averse to that. Right. Yeah, I think that that is very likely true. One last thought on the manager salary thing. Jeff Passan tweeted that prior to council signing this $8 million-ish a year deal, the highest paid manager, as I said, $4.5 million, Terry Francona, lower than basically every other major American sport, right? So you have Bill Belichick making $20 million in the NFL. Right. You have Monty Williams making $13 million in the NBA. You have college football and basketball coaches making $8 million, $11 million. Even in the NHL, Todd McClellan, evidently $5 million. So the highest paid NHL manager was higher than the highest paid MLB manager. And there's more revenue in MLB and players make more money. Yeah. And so in a way, MLB, its managerial salary structure was kind of an outlier on the low end. Which, again, I guess just says something about the role of manager in baseball, or at least the perception of the role of manager in baseball, where in the NBA and the NFL, you have managers who are really doing the game planning and the X's and O's and matching up with opponents and everything. And in MLB, there's a perception that you're just kind of penciling in more or less the same names every day. You know, you're just uh, keeping harmony in the clubhouse, but it's not so much anymore about your tactical genius and you're pulling the strings from the dugout. And so people aren't paid as much, even relative to coaches, managers in other sports. So I guess yeah. councils kind of breaking a, a baseball salary ceiling for managers here, but he seems to be the only one right now. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, like, Belichick is also, like, the GM of his team, which is not going well for other reasons, <laughs> but, like, if I were the Patriots, I'd be like, uh-oh, gotta make some changes. I like how I said it in that voice, as if anyone who works for New England talks like that. But, yeah, I mean, it's like a, it is a surprising thing. I think part of it is, I don't know, I, I just think that it is hard for them to maybe make the case in like really concrete terms at times because so much of their jobs involve soft skills. I don't know. It, it is an interesting, mm -hmm. it's an interesting bit of business. Yep. They need a union maybe, you know? Maybe so. <laughs> or they have Craig Council to yeah. be their, their standard bearer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, after we recorded, Brewers owner Mark Adonacio commented on the likely NL manager of the year, Craig Council. He said, we're all here today because we lost Craig. Sounds like something you'd say in a funeral, but it was a Zoom call. But I've reflected on this. You know, Craig has lost us and he's lost our community. It's a really special place to be. So who's to say who the real loser in this situation is? And you know, Craig may have lost one community, but perhaps he's gained another. And he's also gained a really special salary. Probably eases the pain of leaving a really special place. A few follow-ups. If you have looked at Stephen Vogt's Wikipedia page and noticed that it's extremely exhaustive, we talked about that just about a year ago on episode 1913. I corresponded with the Wikipedia editor who is primarily responsible for making Vogt's Wikipedia page so thorough. 
It is one of the longest baseball player Wikipedia pages, certainly relative to Stephen Vogt's baseball career, and it'll need some updates now. Also, when we were talking about Nelson Cruz's retirement the other day, we raised the question of whether Nelson Cruz is the prominent player with the least remembered PED suspension. A few listeners suggested Bartolo Colon, who of course also went on to play for a very long time and be a productive older player and be well-liked, so people don't hold the PED suspension against him so much, or some of the other things in Colon's past for that matter. We also got some responses to the email we answered about what to call seasons when a player wins a gold glove and a silver slugger. A few listeners, Joe on Patreon and Dennis, they suggested an Electrum season, because Electrum is a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver, which was used in the classical world for coinage, among other things. Electrum season. I like that a lot. Not that anyone would know what you were talking about unless you explained it. Similarly, Discapades suggested alloy athlete. Listener Clive suggested a podium player, because gold and silver have links to the respective medals won at the Olympics and many other events. And Patreon supporter J. Wade Edwards suggested that we should have a third qualifier and a word for gold glove plus silver slugger plus playing all 162 games. Because then you have the gold glove, the silver slugger, and the Iron Man. And the winners of that award would be Dale Murphy in 82, 83, 84, and 85, Eddie Murray in 85, Don Mattingly in 91, Cal Ripken Jr. in 97, Craig Biggio in 98, Rafael Palmero 2002, A-Rod 2005, Mark Teixeira 2007, Jimmy Rollins 2018, and Nick Markakis and Marcus Semien in 2021. Jay says if MLB had any sense of fun, Metallica would present this the most medal ever award. Also, since we talked about Martin Maldonado being demoted to backup catcher, was pointed out to me that Carlos Correa in 2022 reportedly told a Twins coach that Maldonado is worth 15 wins to the Astros because he knows what he's doing behind the plate. He knows every hitter's weaknesses. He's going to try to exploit them. So a 15-win estimate for Martin Maldonado's game calling, at least in 2022. I collect lofty appraisals of how much certain players are worth, which were very common before we had war and other win value metrics. You could kind of say anything. And you can still say almost anything about game calling because we don't have a commonly available stat that says you're wrong. I don't know if Correa would say that Maldonado was worth that much this season, but if the Astros suddenly inexplicably lose a lot of wins next season, well, maybe we'll know why. Finally, after we recorded today, qualifying offers were all extended or not. Only seven players received them. Otani, Bellinger, Chapman, Gray, Hayter, Nola, and Snell. That's the fewest since after the pandemic season. There were six qualifying offers extended in 2020. The only other year with this few after 2018, there were seven, but the average over the previous 11 years was 11.3 qualifying offers, or the median was 10. 2018, there is a downturn in free agency. 2020 was the pandemic year. So the fact that there are seven this year, I think probably reflects the quality of the class. It's fairly low. If you want to make an offering to Effectively Wild, we would welcome that. You just got to go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. That's where you can sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. MCS, Maxwell Elkus, Tom M., Jim Stewart, and LP. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. Anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. 
We'll be back a little later this week. Talk to you then. Effectively